afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link with the evaluation um, for after, if you're attending in person, you'll receive that at the end. And if you're viewing online, we have added that to the slides on the last one. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Supriya Manapali, who is our Medical Director of Infection Control. No. Um, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, everybody, for attending this. This is actually one of the first in our series of lectures for basics and infectious diseases on the common topics we see in patient and in ambulatory setting. And I'm very thankful for Dr. Siddiqui to get this started, um, the series. And Dr. Barr Siddiqui joined us um, in summer um, last year. He completed his medical school at Sabah University School of Medicine in the Caribbean in 2009, followed by his internal medicine residency at United Health Services Hospitals in um, Binghamton, New York in 2012. He initially practiced as an academic hospitalist for two years at the University of Buffalo prior to pursuing his infectious diseases fellowship in 2016 at Virginia Tech Caroleon Clinic in Virginia. He joins us now from the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, where he was an assistant professor for over three years in the Division of Infectious Diseases. He also worked with the infection control team there, I think, right? Yes, he primarily practices in the Gainesville ID clinic. He is our ambulatory infectious diseases expert. And on his free time, he enjoys biking, swimming, and baking with his wife and three little kids. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Badr Siddiqui. Thank you very much, Dr. Manipali um, and Jennifer. Um, pleasure to be here. And uh, I, <clears throat> I feel the warmth of uh, everyone in the virtual world <laughs> on this cold day, but uh, hope I can keep you entertained. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, just you can put them in the chat. Um, I think everyone is muted if uh, virtually. And uh, so let's get right in. Um, so as I uh, said, we're, we're discussing the causes and classification of bone and joint infections. And we're just gonna review basic uh, pathogenesis, diagnosis and treatment for osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. Is it this one? Okay, got it. Um, so osteomyelitis uh, may result from three different things. Uh, it could either be contiguous spread from adjacent tissues or joints. Uh, it may be hematogenous from the blood, uh, or it may be direct inoculation uh, from organisms through uh, trauma or surgery. Um, we don't really talk about this, but uh, pathophysiology you know, the staging, there's a staging uh, for osteomyelitis um, and it's based off of, you know, the anatomy. So uh, medullary means with, with, within 
the bone, uh, it's usually spread you know, hematogenously through blood. Superficial means it's uh, gonna be on the cortical and it's more, um, it may be spread from an adjacent infection. So if somebody has a soft tissue uh, infection in muscle or uh, joint, and then you have localized and diffuse, which are more uh, trauma related or surgery related. And those require usually debridement. The first two stages usually require antibiotics and the second, third and fourth usually require both antibiotics and uh, debridement. Um, then uh, there's some factors, you know, that uh, can increase the risk of osteomyelitis. So if it's uh, systemic factors, these are uh, things that can, um, we see a lot of patients with that have multiple comorbidities. So diabetes, you know, immunosuppression, if they have um, any type of uh, malnutrition, that's always gonna contribute to uh, the development of bone and joint infections. And then also locally, if there's any swelling, we see a lot of patients with, you know, um, stasis dermatitis, um, or if they had radiation, all of these also can cause, uh, increase the risk of osteomyelitis and that uh, can be considered Uh, so pathogenesis, um, there are local factors and there's a general factors like we, I just mentioned. So local is a, you may have a foreign body. So plastic or metal in the body is always going to be a risk for infection. Um, if there's a bone, dead bone anywhere. So if there's a diabetic foot with gangrene, uh, if there's heavy contamination with something, um, and then slowly the bacteria grow, they covered uh, that hardware with slime, and then it spreads, um, causing bone breakdown, osteolysis. And then those are the other factors that contribute to the spread of it, the infection through the bone or joint, because there's not enough good blood supply to the area. If diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, obesity, all of these are inflammatory conditions and that uh, prevent you know, the body's uh, immune system to fight the infection. So uh, they're all contributory to the spread of osteomyelitis. And so what we found from uh, studies is that normally the bone is very resistant to infections um, and due to difficulty in doing pro large prospective trials, but uh, in experimental you know, animal models, it's shown that uh, the bone is generally very um, resilient to infection. Um, in terms of the agents, you know, different types of bugs that cause uh, bone or joint infections. Um, an interesting study showed that only about 44% of uh, this, uh, the, the organism was cultured that was actually, uh, the positive predictive value was, is very low. Um, from, uh, from one study, except if it's a staph aureus. So usually we take staph aureus more seriously when we culture it, you know, even from a swab, um, from a sinus. But we always, as infectious disease, we always um, prefer and hope that we get surgical uh, specimens for cultures. Um, the same study found 60% of chronic osteomyelitis was due to staph aureus followed by Enorbacteriaceae, which are like the E. coli, Klebsiella, 
and pseudomonism is 9% and streptococcus 9%. So these are just, you know, different bugs that cause uh, osteomyelitis. Uh, you can see staph aureus and, and coag negative staph are up there. Um, then enterococcus, uh, strep, and the, some of the gram negatives. And then as you go down the list, you'll get more uh, the rare organisms, so anaerobic causes, TB, you know, and then less than 5% of cases are going to be like atypical non-bacterial, uh, non-TB, um, fun fungi, and uh, molds, and then these at the bottom we very, very rarely see, uh, but they come up on board questions like salmonella um, in someone who has sickle cell and actinomyces in somebody with a uh, draining sinus or a mass presenting with, um, so what is the pathophysiology? So mainly it's adhering to the bone matrix and implants, as we said, in any type of uh, hardware, uh, it's going to allow them to connect and the, they hide in the intracellularly by producing a slimy coat. And so and also, like I mentioned before, that if you have metal or plastic, it won't allow the uh, inflammatory cells, you know, the white blood cells to go there and, and kill the bacteria, the macrophages to uh, eat them all up. Um, so another interesting study, Norden and co-workers analyzed the effect of and duration of antibiotic therapy on bone sterilization in experimental model for chronic uh, staph aureus. And it didn't include surgery as the experimental part of the treatment, 78% uh, and 16% of the bacterial growth after 14 to 28 days. So 78% still had um, staph aureus and 16% still had the, you know, after, so it goes to show the longer you treat, the less bacteria you should have. So after 28 days, there was 16% uh, positive culture still. So what that shows is that usually you know, infectious diseases is, is the mysterious, you know, always the question is, you know, the duration. And so you can tell from there that it's going to depend, you know, case by case. And also uh, for bone, generally like four plus weeks, you know, so four to eight weeks, sometimes we say, it, and then depending on the bug and depending on how the patient is doing, you know, we extend that. Uh, but generally it's going to need at least, you know, four weeks um, for staph aureus at least. Um, these data support prolonged use uh, antibiotics. And again, with debridement is important as well. So again, you have bacterial surface antigens, lipopolysaccharide, uh, staph uh, surface associated proteins. Then you have the lymphocytes, macrophages released and the cytokines. Then you have increased osteoclastic and decreased osteoblastic activity. That means, you know, less bone formation and then you have bone loss. And that's where the bone dies and then the bacteria grow. Um, so symptoms, usually uh, patients may have very vague symptoms. They may not present with acute, you know, infectious symptoms, fever. They may have subacute or chronic presentation. They may have some pain or swelling at that site. Um, they may have fever chills or local swelling. They may have swell uh, redness there, but uh, it, not necessarily. So there may be a draining sinus that usually evolves over uh, several months in cases with patients with chronic osteomyelitis. They may have, uh, you know, the draining sinus um, 
and they have also involucrum and sequestrum. These are things that you see on the imaging. Um, so to diagnose it, it's clinical grounds as everything almost in, in medicine, we like to get a good history and talk about exposures and what type of risk factors they have. Um, and then you combine that with radiographic and lab data and microbiology. And so we often like to see the you know, ESR and, and CRP, these are just non-specific inflammatory markers. So it's very important, just like a troponin or a D-dimer, these may be false positive. And in some very, very rare cases, they may also be false negative. I've seen cases of osteomyelitis in very young patient, otherwise healthy, that had normal SED rate, but they had obvious staph aureus uh, osteomyelitis. And so, but they help to uh, follow when you're on treatment, you know, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate and the CRP. Um, so they may be elevated. They should be, you know, you would think with an uh, infection, the white count as well uh, may or may not be elevated. Um, but again, with the history and with looking at uh, the patient's previous levels, that also helps too. So uh, I always tend to like to get a baseline, you know, a uh, SED rate and white count or CRP, at least on any patient that I see. It's nice to have just as a baseline. So in the future, they got an infection. You can see what do they normally run their levels, just like blood pressure may be normally high or low for patients. So SED rate, and I often get this question with uh, patients in the, in the ambulatory setting that they see their, in their my chart, their, their SED rate or their CRP is sky high and they're freaking out, you know, does this mean I have an infection? You know, am I gonna die, I'm gonna, you know? Um, and there are many things to keep in mind, as I mentioned, that false positive uh, that may cause an elevated CRP or ESR, such as uh, stress, surgeries recently, if they have um, even obesity or diabetes, they also will have a higher set rate. Um, and um, so weight, you know, age, it goes up with age as well, these inflammatory markers. So many, many other things, other conditions, arthritis and et cetera. So that's why it goes back to the first point about clinical grounds, you know, look at, uh, take a good history and exam. Uh, imaging, so the x-ray is very inexpensive and always the best first, you know, thing we should order. Um, a lot of times, you know, we have the pop-up when you're trying to order an imaging CT or MRI, it'll, it'll ask you, you know, did you, did you have this, these other studies done? And so it helps, especially if it's an infection, uh, after 14 days, you know, you should see, uh, something on the x-ray. Um, Going back, sorry. And then you have uh, bone scans are, are sensitive but ex expensive, and also there are a lot of false positives with degenerative joint or bone tumors, and recent surgery can give false positive uh, results as well. Uh, for the boards, they like to say you know MRI is going to be the best imaging, you know uh, better than CT, but it's expensive. And uh, again, you may have some cases where it's false positive. Uh, I've had cases where there's uh, patients with diabetes, they have the Charcot uh, arthropathy, and that can look like osteomyelitis on an MRI. Um, and then sometimes patients may have hardware so that you have to look at other modalities. Um, so about therapy, in 1994, and the introduction of penicillin, key 
wrote that a continuous drug over a long period of time will lessen the amount of discharge, but it will not cure the disease because it cannot sterilize dead bone or cavities with necrotic content and rigid walls. So this is why we always, as infectious diseases, like to uh, get our surgeons involved and, and uh, have debridement taking place, especially when we're seeing things like uh, sacral decubitus ulcers or if it's very bad, you know, foot diabetic, uh, then we like to have some type of debridement because that will help definitely with the healing and the treatment. Especially in cases where there's a resistant organism or uh, fungus rare type of uh, organism that we have to treat very aggressively. Um, so in this study, 248 patients were included, uh, 87, so 35% received ceftriaxone and 65% received cefazolin. And this was just showing that traditionally we always uh, like to use cefazolin uh, for the staph aureus, um, MSSA. And uh, in this study, it's showing that there was no difference in, in the outcome in 90 days between these two groups, between ceftriaxone and uh, cefazolin. Um, but if you'd ask infectious disease, uh, you, you know, uh, specialists, they would mostly go like to go narrow and with cefazolin most of the times when they can. But sometimes this becomes a good uh, outpatient uh, option for once daily ceftriaxone instead of the cefazolin. Um, other common antibiotics use vancomycin, uh, other beta-lactams, uh, linezolid, daptomycin. Um, there's increased failures and decreased MIC for staph strain and goal troughs of 15 to 20, sometimes uh, higher increases risk of uh, kidney injury, um, autotoxicity, and a red man, a red women syndrome, I like to say. And uh, these are things that, reasons why I tend to like to go away from uh, vancomycin. Um, we often see either it's subtherapeutic or super therapeutic levels. And um, so other options are the linezolid, tedezolid, uh, zyvox, uh, oxyzolidinone uh, class. And these are uh, excellent uh, drugs that penetrate into bone and have good coverage for resistant uh, gram-positive infections like uh, VRE, um, MRSA, Another study, multi-center uh, retrospective in Europe, 220 patients with osteomyelitis demonstrated safety and efficacy of daptomycin. And so we often like to get CPK levels weekly with an, a baseline and, and weekly with daptomycin to make sure patients don't develop uh, myositis. But it's actually very, uh, it was found to be very uncommon. Only 0.5% you know, had elevated um, and 75% had good successful outcome. Uh, but still, it's something to look at, uh, and it's important to note that you may have slight elevations in the hundreds. Or uh, uh, if the patient is not having symptoms, we can still continue with the daptomycin. Just continue following the the uh, CPK level and uh, following them uh, clinically, and make sure they're not on any other drug that can worsen that as well, like statins. Um, And, uh, but also to keep in mind that there may be resistance to daptomycin. So I always like to try to get the lab to add sensitivities for daptomycin. Um, and the other rare side effect could be eosinophilic pneumonia, which I've never seen, but it's in case reports, um, something to watch out for. 
Uh, rifampin is something we will add, especially if the patient has hardware and if it, or if it's a gram positive infection with like staph, staph aureus, we like to uh, combine it. It helps to penetrate the biofilm, but we have to watch out for a lot of drug-drug interactions with rifampin and also uh, hepatotoxicity and also caution the patient that they will, they will have the harmless side effect of uh, discolorization of their urine and, and tears. I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that end up freaking out <laughs> when they've started on this, this drug. Um, so also we have to be cautious about uh, resistance with this drug. And as I mentioned, the, the uh, interaction, drug-drug interactions, there's probably about 400 interactions, different drugs. It doesn't mean that you don't have to use it, but I usually caution. So I reach out to a pharmacy and to the, whoever it is, the internist or cardiologist and ask them, you know, uh, can we decrease or increase uh, whatever drug so that we can use the rifampin? And usually it's not a problem. They just have to monitor the blood pressure or the um, cholesterol or whatever it is that's interacting with the rifampin. Um, so the best documented combination is with quinolones. So on the boards, they like to ask, you know, what's a good oral option, you know, for uh, consolidation therapy with somebody in osteomyelitis and staph aureus, and you will say Cipro with uh, rifampin. Ceftaroline um, uh, is another drug. It's good for uh, MRSA, um, and and the issue is expense. Um, and also remember to add on sensitivities uh, instead of assuming the. So, uh, systemic literature reviewed uh, did not find evidence and or benefit of antibacterial uh, therapy in setting without concomitant. Um, surgical debridement and wound coverage. So with sacrum, uh, you, we always like to have a multidisciplinary approach, which means uh, getting wound care closely involved, uh, doing aggressive uh, wound care and positioning and getting surgery, general surgery involved for debridement, bone biopsy, and uh, consideration of diverting colostomy and urostomy and doing uh, uh, good nutrition, making sure the sugars are controlled. Uh, and then finally with the IV antibiotics, uh, then have a bone, a muscle flap, you know, by plastic surgery, you know, th that's why it, it, it becomes difficult, you know, uh, sometimes in these type of patients because they may not follow up, follow through or may not want to have the colostomy or um, maybe high risk for debridement. Um, and it's interesting to show, uh, state that uh, many patients with exposed bone uh, do not actually have osteomyelitis when biopsied. And so MRI may or may not distinguish from that. Um, the goal is uh, lo local wound care and assess for wound closure. And um, if wound can be closed and osteomyelitis on bone is present, appropriate antibiotic therapy is reasonable. Uh, there's no data to support antibiotic duration more than six weeks in that setting. And some authors would recommend only two weeks if it's limited to cortical bone. But again, so everything is going to be case by case. Um, this is just according to this article. Um, so this is an interesting study recently done. Uh, it was a review of uh, Medline and other databases showing that most antibiotics including amoxicillin, zosin, cephalosporins, carbapenems, astrinam, quinolones, 
aminoglycosides, anezolid, daptol, clinda, all, all these drugs uh, have very good uh, bone penetration and, uh, and bone and joint penetration with concentrations exceeding the MIC or, or uh, of breakpoints for many uh, organisms. So this article was uh, 2019 um, demonstrating that. Um, and what it showed is some, only a, a few antibiotics like penicillin, uh, um, fluoxacin and metronidazole had lower uh, than optimum penetration. And, uh, and then there's another article uh, which is fairly recent, showing that oral is the new IV. And so it's uh, titled Challenging Decades of Blood and Bone, uh, bone Infection uh, Dogma. Um, systemic, uh, systematic review, 21 studies demonstrated either no difference in clinical efficacy or superiority of oral versus IV only in uh, antimicrobial therapy, including for mortality. So in no study was IV only treatment at superior in efficacy. The only frequency of catheter-related uh, adverse event and duration of inpatient hospitalization were both greater in uh, IV only. So this study, again, uh, fairly recent, in, uh, 2021, is uh, hopefully going to change the trend where we always like to treat bone infections with IV um, I will just say that I tend to, and, and there's difference of opinion. Again, it's case by case, depending on the patient, uh, you know, how um, compliant they're gonna be, uh, depending on how severe the patient's clinical course was or how, um, what options we have in terms of what oral options we have, what bug we have. So I tend to like to, you know, individualize everything. I say individualize, you know, the, the patient, the bug and the drug because those are the three things we're dealing with. So individualizing the patient means making sure, okay, does the patient, is the patient gonna take the oral drugs or better or is IV better for them? Or do they have issues with um, costs uh, or the, the administration of the antibiotic? Do they have allergies or drug-drug interactions? Do they have kidney failure or hepatic insufficiency or uh, other reasons to choose one um, uh, IV versus oral? Uh, then you look at the uh, the bug, you know, so in certain circumstances, we, we wouldn't mess around. We would like to just do IV at least for a couple of weeks. So like nocardia, actinomyces, uh, MRSA, other, you know, fungal infections, uh, rare things. We like to usually um, give, you know, uh, uh, initial two weeks or six, eight weeks, depending on what it is, uh, IV. And then consolidation with you know oral, we can transition them to later. Um, so again, it's case by case, and then so individualize the patient, uh, the bug, and then the drug again. So if it's a good, uh, if it, if the drug is available, it's not expensive for the patient. If it has good tolerability and um, bone penetration and it, and so on, then you would decide you know to to go that uh, oral route. Uh, so septic arthritis, now, overall incidence is uh, in native joints is two in, uh, to 12 in 100,000 per year. Uh, the risk factors, uh, you know, IV drug abuse. 
So um, the infections with IV drug abuse increased uh, during opioid uh, epidemic in 20, uh, 2010. Uh, other risk factors include uh, recent joint surgery, if they have arthritis, uh, advanced age, IV drug abuse, uh, concomitant skin infection, and diabetes. <clears throat> So it's usually gonna be from uh, through the blood uh, transmission, it's less commonly through direct joint inoculation or from contiguous focus. Uh, so the different bugs associated with septic arthritis, most uh, gonna be gram positive. So Staph aureus again, and strep uh, predominate. The gram negatives are seen maybe five to 20%, mainly in neonates, elderly, IV drug abused abusers, and uh, immunocompromised patients. The prevalence of gonococcal arthritis has decreased. Um, there are two syndromes with that. One is monoarticular arthritis, and other one is disseminated gonorrhea with febrile tenosynovitis. This is something you know to consider patients' uh, uh, sexual history, um, presentation. Uh, other rare causes are going to be viral. So uh, parvovirus it may be something to consider in community outbreaks. Uh, chikungunya is often chronic, um, comes up on boards that somebody uh, had travel to the Florida or uh, Caribbean and has mosquito bites and they come back with a rash and joint pains and they have uh, joint pains that last for several months, you know, more than uh, sometimes a year. And um, rubella, may, which may actually follow after immunization, hepatitis B, hep C, uh, which they like to ask on boards into our medicine, which one is associated with what type of other uh, conditions, you know, uh, the hepatitis B with polyarteritis nodosa, hepatitis C, cryoglobin anemia. Uh, you can also have like pyoderm, uh, I mean, you can have uh, uh, porphyria with that. And, um, and then other viruses, uh, Ross River virus and onion uh, virus, which is related to the uh, chikungunya, same vector. Um, it's usually going to be symmetrical polyarticular arthritis and simultaneously with, uh, with other systemic symptoms of viral infection. Um, chronic causes of septic arthritis may be TB or non-TB mycobacteria, uh, fungal causes, yeast, um, candida, and, and the dimorphs, um, and rarely other uh, fun fungi like mold. Um, again, you have to get a good history and see if there's you know exposure. Have they had traveled to Southwest or Mississippi Ohio River area? Do they have um, excavating, spelunking, or gardening? You know, are birds, bats, pigeons? These are the type of things that make ID interesting when we have to ask all these funny questions. Uh, so again, not common, but seen in immunocompromised host. Most infections and joints are gonna be uh, monoarticular, but 10 to 20 are gonna be polyarticular. And the knee is the most often involved joint. Uh, lab findings may have, uh, we love to have the, this uh, synovial fluid analysis and also to look for crystals because you may have both of them going on, gout and uh, septic arthritis. Uh, there's, they always talk about in textbooks, the different uh, ranges for the uh, white count to be inflammatory or infectious, but 
keep in mind that there's always going to be that gray area, gray zone where it may be infectious or inflammatory. And depending on what bug it is, it may be actually lower for fungal or other atypical organisms, the white count. Um, okay, so I went through that. I was just going to quickly do some questions and I'm sorry I didn't bring any candy, but maybe next time. <laughs> any takers for the first question? Anybody would like to read the question and take a stab at it? Okay. Here. Oh my God, you didn't have to say that. Which of the following is the earliest finding of osteomyelitis in x-ray? Periostal elevation, involucrum, sequestrum, punched out lesions, or a fracture? This is from boards. Uh, I think it's, I think it's either So it may be process of elimination. Elimination. So it's not a help. fracture. It's not a punched out lesion. Good. <clears throat> and I remember that involucrum and sequestrum. One of them was before the other. And then there was periosteal elevation. So let's go with let's go with A. Very good. Yeah. So the B and C are more common with uh, uh, chronic osteomyelitis, and punch uh, out lesions you'll see mostly in uh, you may see in myeloma, and fracture can be uh, seen after uh, uh, in, in about twenty five percent of cases in open fracture. Uh, okay. Next question. Who's a little bit longer. <laughs> I'll offer you a free curbside ID console. A 55-year-old uh, AAM to the ER with pain and swelling in the right knee, fatigue and chills. The pain started two days ago. He has no medical history and <clears throat> is on no meds. He denies trauma or any history of similar joint pain. On physical exam, his vitals, temperatures 38.6 Celsius, blood pressure 100 over 60, um, heart rate 115, respiration rate 18, right knee reveals a large effusion with warmth and tenderness to palpation and limited range of motion. Rest of exam is normal. X-ray of the right knee reveals swelling and chondrocalcinosis, but no fracture. <clears throat> Arthrocentesis yields synovial fluid by blood cell of uh, 100, 125,000 per millimeter, um, predominantly neutrophils. Microscopy shows rare intracellular rhomboid-shaped crystals with weakly positive birefringence. Gram stain shows no organisms. Culture results are pending which one of the following initial empiric treatments, if any, is best for this patient? Uh, a, observation with no empiric treatment. B, colchicine. C, ceftriaxone and vancomycin. D, intracellular glucocorticoids. Or E, indomethacin. <clears throat> um, if you need me to go back, I can... Still, still, still. Mm -hmm. 
I'm sorry? Sure, take your time. See? I think you still have to cover this. A? <laughs> Do we have a consensus or? What was that? What's your final? Oh, we. Um, C. I'll go with C. You sure? You sure? There was a high yes. neutrophil count. Yes, it is C actually. Very good. So, anybody want to tell me why? Because the WBC count was 125,000. So by definition, it's septic arthritis. Yeah. So the thing is here, yeah, it, it, uh, it may be gout as well. You see crystals. But again, going to the point where what's going to kill this patient, you know, uh, not giving him antibiotics, you know. Uh, so the idea is on the boards, they like to make sure that you choose, like they always say, you know, what's, which of the following is the next best step or which of the following is the best, you know, uh, in management. Um, so there may be more than one right answer. There are probably two things you want to do, you know, it's, uh, but this question, it's more what's more immediate in this case. Okay, number three. And I only have four questions, so don't worry. Um, who's next? Yes. No, he, he raised his hand. A 38-year-old white male with a history of IVDA presents the ER with severe right hip pain that's progressed over a week. Uh, he also has complaints of fever, chills, and malaise. Physical exam, temperature is 38.6, pulse is uh, 114, BP 110 over 60. His right hip is uh, erythematous at a edematous and tender to palpation. Uh, lab show white blood cell count of 18K and ESR 65. Blood cultures are growing GPC in clusters. Uh, what is the mechanism of action of the drug of choice in this patient? Yeah. You will get a question like this on your boards for those who have to take them, <laughs> but maybe not as... Uh as difficult, but uh, they're, they're going to discuss. Give them one second. Sure. Yeah, take your time. It's not, it's not A, it's not C, it's not D. By binding to it and producing hydroxy radicals, binding to fast. Okay, so B. We're going to go with B as okay, a boy. Okay, very good. And what, what drug are we talking about here? Yes, very good. So either vancomycin or adaptomycin. So just to recap, you know, the first one, inhibition of DNA topoisomerases, that's the mechanism of action for the quinolones. Uh, for the 30S uh, protein synthesis in inhibition, that's tigacycline. The, uh, for the 23S RNA, that's the linezolid. And for damaging cell wall by binding and producing uh, hydroxy radicals, that's beta-lactams. So, uh, for vancomycin, daptomycin, and actually for um, 
amphotericin as well, it's the depolarization. So just remember like the, the, the go-to like big guns, you know, when there's severe infection, we, we don't know what's going on. We use usually the cytal drugs that cause depolarization uh, by causing these, you know, poking holes into the cell membrane. All right, last question. Okay. A 50-year-old Hispanic female presents with a pain in her right first and second maxillary premolars with associated pus drainage for three months. She had a history of similar episode 1.5 years ago, which was treated with pain meds and antibiotics without records. Oral exam revealed an irregular necrotic palatal defect with an antral communication forming an oroantral fistula. So that's a picture. Uh... <clears throat> Routine labs were normal except for neutrophilic leukocytosis and elevated ESR. And this is the orthopantogram. I don't know if we have this in a hospital to order like that. Anorex, but uh, you can see the destruction in the right maxilla. Okay. And then this is the gram, the stain. Uh, Which of the following is the appropriate treatment for this patient? Vancomycin for eight weeks, followed by PO Bactrim for six weeks. Metronidazole IV for eight weeks, followed by PO for six weeks. Bactrim IV for four to eight weeks, followed by PO for six to 12 months. Penicillin IV for two to six weeks, followed by PO for six to 12 months. Yeah, I'm phoning, I'm phoning a lot of friends. So the organism to me looks like um, uh, is it uh, actinomyces? Very good. Um, I'm trying to remember from my sketchy micro. Uh, Very one. good. Okay, penicillin. Awesome, D. you guys did great. I'm proud of you. So yes, um, actinomyces, um, like I was mentioning, you can have a mass. It sometimes can present in patients who have like a breast mass and they Think it's cancer but it ends up having like a you know draining sinus and um the uh, biopsy is negative for malignancy then you have to ask them to do special staining for this and uh you know the treatment because it's atypical and difficult to eradicate is going to be iv and then uh oral long term and so nocardia actinomyces are those atypical super you know uh bacteria that we sometimes suspect, you know, in, in, uh, in certain patients that uh, may be autoimmune or I mean uh, immunocompromised um, or have a mass or have um, and nocardia is something. Um, and both of these can be in a mucompetent as well and sometimes may be isolated, but uh, with long-term, if not treated, can progress and uh, cause more problems like nocardia can go to the brain. Uh, it's notorious, 40% of them can metastasize there. And, and it's interesting. That's why I love ID because uh, we go head to toe and any organ, uh, organ can affect any, uh, any organism can affect any organ. And 
doesn't necessarily have to be always down there, like HSV you know, one and two, they, they can be anywhere. And, you know, gram negatives, you know, uh, anaerobes above and below the diaphragm, there could be different types of uh, uh, all these really rare, weird organisms and the names they keep changing on us because they want to keep us on our toes. So a lot of bugs you'll realize, you know, that they were formerly just like pneumocystis, you know, Jurovici now before there's uh, Kernii. Uh, they have multiple other organisms that they keep changing the names on because they have slightly different features, but the names also help to uh, uh, understand what, you know, they, uh, how they grow or where you can find them. So that helps sometimes, you know, if you have a, you know, like capnocytophagia, this, you know, it requires CO2 for those of you who are going into pulmonary critical care. So keep that in mind. Um, I think that's end, end of my presentation. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for your attention and for your participation. You guys did great. Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. Do we have any questions or um, comments? Oh, hold on. We got a question over here. And if you have a question online, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we'll ask for you. Uh, hey, I just had a stupid question, but uh, you, question said, is stupid. <laughs> um, you said the knee is most prevalent. Is there a reason why that happens? It's Which one is most prevalent? Sorry? You said uh, the knee location. A lot oh, of times it's most prevalent. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I would think maybe because of uh, the use uh, of the knee, like and being um, patients that have uh, arthritis generally it affects the knee as well. Most commonly, I guess, uh, we see more knee replacements, I think, as well. So um, I didn't talk a bunch about that, but we see a lot of, you know, uh, total knee replacement, uh, prosthetic infections as well. So um, that's probably taking into consideration those numbers too. Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui, for presenting this on this topic. Um, and thank you for adding that slide about sacral osteomyelitis, that antibiotics really don't help unless patient had surgical debridement and you have reliable culture. So that's very important because we tend to overuse antibiotics for that. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other questions or comments? I don't see any online. Oh, here we go. Are the, slides. Are the slides online? Uh, they should, I guess. Uh, so we are recording this and it will be located at our CME webpage in uh, www.nghs.com forward slash CME. Then you'll just click on video library. Oh, here we go. Um, for that sacral osteomyelitis, let's say for whatever reason, the patient can't get the bridemen what would be like the next best course of action? So in certain cases, sometimes we just ask close, you know, uh, follow-up and debridements, you know, I mean, uh, wound care. And uh, I have a patient just last week, that, you know, that she was already treated for six weeks and then they recultured her and it has all these resistant organisms. So I just recommended, to, you know, have follow-up with her and have close, you know, monitoring for if she becomes septic and just keep doing wound care um, because that's the, you know, uh, caveat of doing, you know, just um, wound swabs 
you'll get a lot of uh, bacteria you just consider like bystander they're just colonizers and uh, garbage you know that um, you, you can ignore if, if they're not having you know systemic signs and symptoms of infection and um, so uh, because the issue is uh, the issue is tissue number one <laughs> and so but that bone you know uh, biopsy for culture and histopathology and also the the, you know, the side effects of being on so antibiotics for so long and, and the resistance just develops more. So sometimes we have to just keep a close eye. I have a question. Um, speaking of sacral osteo, I know you added it in the slides about if the patient has surgical debridement, the reliable culture, sometimes we may do the two weeks course for any skin and soft tissue infection there. Um, you touched on duration a bit and thank you for including the oral to IV. Uh, or IV to oral, which is what we're all trying to change and adapt. Um, what about the optimal duration for acute or chronic osteo? What do you usually, how long do you treat them? For a sacral or you? Oh, just any? Um, no, other sites, not sacral. Oh, yeah. So uh, again, depending on the organism and the response um, clinically and lab-wise, uh, lab um, maybe four to eight weeks, uh, but we generally like to take them <laughs> the, the average six weeks. Uh, again, if it's, uh, it, it depends on the organism. I think if they're more resistant then we wouldn't go a little longer. Um, but um, you know, I have some patients I see in the clinic that have finger osteo um, and uh, has no uh, normal labs and the finger actually looks better after a few weeks. I'm usually comfortable, you know, just finishing off like maybe four weeks in those cases. Uh, again, if they don't have risk factors and other, uh, you know, concerns for. Uh... Now, the other thing I, I like to let the patients know and other providers is that the, the imaging may lag behind. And so I, I often explain to my patients, like if somebody cuts me, I have pain and bleeding early on the acute phase. And then the chronic phase, I may have like a scar, a keloid or something that becomes like more, you know, cosmetic and it's not really something to worry about. So similarly on imaging, it may uh, continue to show up or you, like, just like we know after surgery, you may have surgical changes, post-operative, you know, like uh, swelling, whatever. So that's something to always keep in mind as well. Um, always important to couple it with the clinical, you know, um, picture of the patient, you know, how they're doing, but sometimes the patients tell you they're doing fine and they look fine, but they actually have something <laughs> rip-roaring going on. So it, it's very hard to, to always know for sure. Uh, but that's what, you know, we're here for. We'd like to, you know, follow up with them in the clinic and I'm, you know, pleased to meet you all, you know, and uh, I work, you know, across the street. So send all your patients there. Uh, I'm sure would drive. We, we do have one question online. How long can a patient safely stay on doxycycline? Yeah, so sometimes I, I, I didn't talk about uh, in certain cases, you know, chronic suppression antibiotics, which I personally try to avoid in some cases where there's uh, indwelling chronic hardware infection, you know, like knee or hip, and uh, the patient had like, you know, recurrent uh, staph aureus uh, infection those patients we do keep on, you know, chronic uh, long-term suppression therapy. And it can be for years. Uh, it just depends on how they're doing with the, that medication. So certain things like, so for doxycycline, you have to caution them about uh, 
photosensitivity. So we usually say uh, if you if you get sunburn, like if you toast in in an hour, you may toast in half an hour. So you just have to put more sunscreen. And for the liver as well, it can cause uh, phytotoxicity. So just monitoring them probably every few months. Um, and if they have side effects, then we can switch them to another agent. And some patients uh, I've slowly been that have been hand down, you know, I slowly take them off as well um, and, and just monitor them, you know, if they've been on like doxy or some something else, Keflex for like three years because they had an infection because I explained to them that the bugs get smarter than the drugs. And so they will mutate, overcome and become resistant. And then we'll have less uh, options down the road. Thank you. Anything My pleasure, else? thank you. All right, thank you, Dr. Okay, thank you.